there will always be MacGyvering that needs to happen because patients will always come with unique circumstances that we will need to step up, right? The uncertainty in emergency medicine is so unbelievable. It's such a fascinating space to live in where it's very different than, you know, if you have, I don't know, a broken bone, the uncertainty of that orthopedic repair is much narrower versus you come with, you know, I don't know, pain somewhere. It may not even be the problem. It might be that, you know, some other electrolyte disturbance or whatever it might be. The, the uncertainty is so massive. We, I'm, I'm confident MacGyver will never go away in emergency medicine, but I think we can do a better job designing. And I, and you talk about burnout and you talk about, you know, not having enough staff and efficiency and all that. Like we have an opportunity to redesign how we deliver care so that we can use the current resources without even putting a dollar more in uh, more effectively. Hi folks, I'm Dan Dworkis and this is the Emergency Mind podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Dr. Andrew Petrosoniak. Now, Andrew is an emergency physician and trauma team leader at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto and the inaugural lead for translational simulation at Unity Health Toronto. He's also an assistant professor at the University of Toronto, where his research work focuses on, one, using in-situ simulation to improve systems and design, and two, optimizing the care of bleeding patients. He's also the co-principal of Advanced Performance Healthcare Design, which is a design and consulting firm that uses simulation to inform and enhance high-stakes decision-making. You can find Andrew on Twitter with the handle, at Petrosoniak. Okay, so this is a really cool episode. We dive into design thinking and the deep and often surprising value of spending time in the problem space as opposed to just jumping directly into the solution space. We also get into training for how to make decisions, concepts around identity and excellence, and a ton more. Before we get started, a reminder, if you have ideas you want us to dig into, challenges that you and your team are facing, or really anything else you want to share related to the podcast, send us an email at podcast at emergencymind.com. And if you want to do more to support the podcast and the emergency Mind project in general, you can head over to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash emergency mind and make any sort of a contribution. Okay, all that said, let's jump right into episode 72 with Dr. Andrew Petrosoniak. I hope you enjoy. All right, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. It is awesome to sit down with you and talk uh, sort of in person. I guess we'll call this in person these days. We've traded a bunch of ideas back and forth over the internet universe, but I'm psyched to, to dive into it with you. So thanks for coming on board. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. And I look forward to the conversation. Mm. So for folks that aren't as familiar with you that haven't been following you, first off, they should. And if you're listening to this, you definitely should. But you know, 30,000 foot view, who are you and what's your what's your deal? Yeah, so uh, I live in Toronto, Canada. I'm an eMERGE doc and a, and a trauma doc. So I kind of about 75% of my time's uh, clinical time is doing emergency medicine. About 25% of my time is trauma exclusively trauma care as a, as a trauma team lead at uh, St. Mike's Hospital in Toronto. And then uh, I do research and, and academic work in simulation. So that's sort of where I've kind of focused most of my time. And it, it's evolved over the last few years from being heavily focused in education, because I think that's where most people in simulation start. And now we've evolved, uh, and I, I do a lot more work, what might be called translational simulation. So that's work in bringing or linking more patient outcomes to simulation and eventually changing processes, designing spaces better. Uh, the way that you might imagine a car gets designed, you know, it gets designed, you you crash test it, and then, uh, then you know, nobody ever gets into a car before it's been crash tested. And we fully know that and it's going to work and it's all great. We do the same with using simulation of clinical spaces. So, you know, I don't, I'm a firm believer that no patient should ever be the first test case of a mm. clinical space. So yet it happens every day, every day, there's a new hospital built that's never been tested. And, you know, our family members, our friends, us were, were the first test cases for those spaces. So we use simulation to test that we use simulation to improve outcomes or, or identify opportunities to improve outcomes. And then more recently, uh, my uh, colleague, Chris Hicks, and I have co-founded uh, Advanced Performance, and we're a, a simulation-based company that does uh, simulation-informed design for a broad, a broad range of things, whether it be uh, architectural spaces uh, healthcare, and within healthcare startups uh, we work with to help them with their products and piloting products, uh, you know, a whole range of things there. 
Hmm. Can we dig in on that? Like, how do you actually do a SIM that tests a patient, like a patient space, a, a medical delivery space? Hmm. I'm blanking on a word there. I haven't had enough coffee yet this morning, clearly, but how do you actually accomplish that sort of a SIM? Yeah, it's a great question. So we often will start with, I mean, it depends on where you're at, but we'll start sometimes with the existing space. So imagine, you know, the, the best way to design something is to understand how people work, which we often just whiz right by in medicine. We just go right to a solution. So we rarely spend time in a problem space. And this is sort of uh, coming from the design thinking models uh, that uh, has come out of um, IDEO and, and Stanford and, and the, the group down there. And they, this is now sort of pretty ubiquitous, I think, in, in many industries, though, though less common in healthcare. And so it's really about, they use the term empathy, but it's really understanding people and understanding their space, understanding what work they do. And then from there, you start to define the problem. And we would, the empathy stage or the early understanding, we, we would do direct observation of people in their space, or we run simulations in the existing space. And the learnings that come from that then inform future designs. And we've done this. We've done this with the Trauma Bay at St. Mike's. We've done this in subsequent projects in, in my own institution. And we've done it elsewhere through with advanced performance. And once you understand the problems, then you can start to run simulations. So now you, you know, then you kind of create a blank slate. Like you, you know, you you might put cardboard walls up and and then you know, very basic stuff. How do people move within the space? And then gradually build in and add in equipment and until you get to a spot where you're, you've achieved the objectives that, that you, you've set out. So for example, when we were building the trauma bay a few years ago at St. Mike's, we watched, we did unannounced trauma in situ simulations and we could get into sort of whether that's a good idea or not. And, but, but we did it and we, we captured all of that data and we worked with human factors experts to observe, you know, how that all plays out. And we, we did a whole sort of a bunch of analyses on that. And there's things that, that we realize that I think we, we just kind of are happy we can overcome in medicine. Like we're happy when the job is difficult because there's poor design. And we're like, no, we MacGyvered this. We can overcome anything, particularly in emergency medicine, which is madness when you're talking that what you're actually doing is saving somebody's life or attempting to. So we, we identified things that, you know, a tangible example is the monitors in our space. We were, we were realizing that clinicians during a, you know, a critical airway were turning their heads to find the monitor, like everybody does all around the world. Right. And because it's too loud to deal with the, the audio cues. And so they were missing critical desaturations. And so simple solutions of putting a monitor at the foot of the bed, which, you know, like you would have like in an airport where monitors hang down from everywhere was we've actually built into the design. So the new space has that. And we can add, we've actually captured people's, you know, looking now at that space rather than looking behind them. And, and so now you're actually visualizing desaturation much faster, you know, oxygen drops and stuff like that. So you can actually act faster. So what you're doing is you're, you're designing spaces using simulation to truly understand because it's very difficult to watch people in real life all the time. I mean, you can do that and that's a good thing to do. But if you simulation, what it does is it gives you, it kind of allows you to be the director like you're doing a film and you can precisely design what you want to test on my time in, you know, when I understand it's going to happen, not like, you know, I, I don't have to wait for somebody that needs intubation to come into the ED when I'm conducting a simulation because I just build that in. And then I can exactly test how the clinicians work. And, and so then we use those principles that we identify and that then gets fed into the design of the space. And then, you know, now we're using virtual reality and stuff so we can quickly iterate on that. And if it doesn't work, then we pivot and we go completely in a different direction. But if it does, then we double down on it and we keep going. And, you know, so you, now you're not the traditional way of building. It would be just be like, we build it, hopefully it works. And then we backtrack and throw in stuff that, well, you know, because we can't actually get to the monitor or we can't access the airway equipment, we're going to have things hanging down from here and there. And you now have all these unintended consequences and it's a disaster. So, so by doing it systematically upfront, you know, investment in, in time and effort, good design is just so incredibly important. And we use simulation to support that. 
Oh, that's, that's amazing. I'm having many flashbacks to all of the different resuscitation bays that I've worked in, in various hospitals and the number of workarounds that we've geared up to, and the number of really critical moments with patients' lives in the balance where the system was not not only not supporting me or my team, but actively working against us because of some sort of unintended, unintended consequence like that. And just to wrap some, a little bit of terminology around that for, for folks listening to this, we've talked about this a couple of times over the course of the podcast, but one of the things we're really getting at here, just to have some foundational terminology is the difference between work as done and work as imagined. Right. So work as imagined is what I imagine things are going to be like. Okay. I'm going to create a space and say, okay, Andrew and Dan are going to resuscitate some people in this space. And here's probably what it'll look like. And we sort of create a vision and then like build a space and go for it. Work is done is taking the opposite approach on that and actually looking at us in that space and being like, well, what do they actually do? Right. So work is done is what Andrew's describing when he's saying, well, they ha- you have to turn your head around to look at the monitor because the monitor is behind you because you didn't think about that when you were, when you were envisioning all of this. And this is a tension that, like you said, is pretty ubiquitous in emergency medicine. And I'm, I'm wondering out loud, as I'm saying this, like, you know, do we think that that's because historically emergency medicine was almost like an afterthought of the medical care system? Like, you know, we design operating suites and ICUs in a very particular way, but we can talk about how to do those better too, for sure. But emergency medicine was sort of like the we're like the add-on, the interface between the controlled world and the uncontrolled world. And where were those two waves smashed together? Do you think that has anything to do with it? Oh, yeah. I mean, we're, we, we have not, I don't think, perfected the design of a physical space nor the processes that should exist within an emergency department, for sure. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. I think it's been continually, you know, because the requirements that the emergency department provides have continually evolved over time. And it's been, you know, I'm sure it's the same in the US as it is in Canada. If you can't see, you know, Dr. X, then just go to the ED, you mm-hmm. know, and, and so we've suddenly become the backstop for all that is healthcare. And it's very difficult to design that for that, you know, what we can design for is resuscitations. Sure. And I think a lot of resuscitation spaces are, you know, reasonably well designed. I think there's, you know, opportunity to do better. And, but the design of flow with through an ED, I think we have not captured very well and done very well. And I think like that you're right, exactly. The des- work as imagined and versus work as done is a, is such an important, two important concepts. What I would say is I think neither of those are good nor bad. And mm-hmm. what often happens is people say, oh, work as imagined is like what the administrators think, which is true. And work is done is like what us in the, you know, on the ground, us at the front lines, that's what we're doing. Like, and it tends to be like the work is done is sort of like a positive thing. And the work is imagined is, is negative in that, like, nobody really understands what we're actually doing, but work is imagined may or may not be imagined properly. And just like work is done may not be done properly. And so you just need to have an idea that okay, I'm going to go through something in my mind. And that's why we use simulation. And so we we also have work as simulated. And so we hope to bridge the gap between work as imagined and work as done and get, you know, how can we imagine how to deliver care better or do process X or Y, Z so that it it meets the needs or that that's actually doable? Because some stuff is also not doable. So, you know, we'll never, for certain things, you'll never be able to have work as imagined and work as done align. That necessarily isn't the goal, but it's to ensure that, you know, whatever the outcome is that you're trying to achieve that, that can be done. So we use simulation to sort of help bridge those and understand the tensions between those, those two concepts and, you know, expose maybe, you know, we have work as yet to be defined. That's the, maybe that's Mm. where we should be targeting to. And so there's probably a few other elements that have been, and um, these have been sort of described. And and I think that's where, you know, the future lies is really understanding. Yeah. Start with work as imagined and understand how work is done, but then, you know, work as simulated allows us to test how those two things interface. and, And then we can, we can adjust it over time. There's so much cool stuff in there. And I think one of the things that jumps out to me is this idea that if you don't look for things, if you don't proactively go out and look for ways to make your team and your culture better, you're going to miss a bunch, 
right? Whether you're coming at it more from a work as done or a work as imagined or any of these things, if you don't go out and actually try to figure it out, you're just, you're leaving things on the table and people and teams are going to be less than they could be otherwise. There's this tension in there that we're describing also between sort of making do with what is and running roughshod over different things and designing better versions of what we have. And this is a tension that's certainly not unique to emergency medicine, right? Lots and lots of teams across lots and lots of domains face this tension. Do you do more by stretching the system that you have, or do you design better systems in there? One of the things that I think does make us a little bit unique that you alluded to earlier when you're talking about the MacGyvering idea is that for some reason, that's become part of our identity as who we are as providers. And we almost take a, a perverse pride in that, right? Like the worse you make the circumstances, the more proud we feel about getting through it. We were talking with some of my residents about that last night, that we take a lot of pride at being the people that other doctors in the hospital call, like in large quotes here, call when things go bump in the night, right? When they need somebody who is able to jump into any circumstance and figure it out with a toothpick, you call us in the hospital. And there's some joy and, and deep like importance to our identity that, that we are those people. There's a risk to that too, though, which is that we stop looking for excellence and greatness and get satisfied with essentially satisficing a problem set, right? How do you deal with that? How do you design better systems and better teams without losing some of the identity edge that, that we're the weirdos that'll try to solve it with a toothpick? Yeah. I'm not, I'm not too worried that we're going to lose that identity. I think we can <laughs> like completely focus on designing for better. I mean, the idea that you know, like every part of our day is, is really working around a system likely that is not working in our benefit. And so there, I would say we just directly focus on improving whatever we can at a system level. Like the idea, if you come into our trauma bay, if it was poorly designed, which it's uh, my biased opinion is it's not, but if it was poorly designed, you would have to spend time orientating people to the space at, you know, call it an hour or something to show them where all the equipment is, what we've done. And then, so now you have an hour of, of work that's just occurred to orient, you know, new residents, new staff, whatever to the space. What we've done is okay. I mean, sure. Everybody needs orientation to a new space, but we've made, you know, if you come into our trombe, we have carts that blatantly say chest tube on the massive font, like, I don't know, 500 font. Uh, so that there is no way that you can walk into that trauma bay and not know where the chest tube tray is, like, like not even close. And all of the equipment in a sequenced fashion is there so that drawer one has this and drawer two has, you know, the next set of equipment. And then drawer three has, you know, your, the, for the suction and, you know, like the whole, the whole thing is in sort of a sequenced manner. So now we can do that education in like five minutes because we can rely on the design of the system or the space to be robust enough that under pressure, even though you're not going to be able to read properly because you're stressed out, but, but like you're probably going to be able to read 200 font or 500 font and you're going to be able to find it. And so then you can actually spend the time, the other 55 minutes that you've allocated to, you know, orientating the space, you can actually do work in the space. You can actually practice, you can train. So that's where I'd love to see, you know, people don't understand the opportunity cost of poor design because then you're actually spending your time training people to remember where things are or how to find something or, you know, remember, you know, signs everywhere to remember, to remember, to do something. It is, is just not considered in medicine, but is such a massive time vampire that we don't realize like we could actually be spending time training and getting better, like going through a case that requires a chest tube and does the decision-making around that. Instead, we're focused on where is the chest tube equipment and why can't I find it under uh, some stress? And so I think if we started to frame that to, you know, hospital leadership, if you start to frame that broadly to, to, to healthcare leaders about what's lost by not having good design, then that, you know, and you put a monetary value on it because really that's, what's going to, I think, drive change that, or, or a patient value. So, so if it's linked to a specific patient outcomes, then, you know, we'll start to see improvements. Then we'll start to get back to your question of 
how can we start to not do so much MacGyvering? I don't think that wherever there will always be MacGyvering that needs to happen because patients will always come with unique circumstances that we will need to step up, right? The uncertainty in emergency medicine is so unbelievable. It's such a fascinating space to live in where it's very different than, you know, if you have, I don't know, a broken bone, the uncertainty of that orthopedic repair is much narrower versus you come with, you know, I don't know, pain somewhere. It may not even be the problem. It might be that, you know, some other electrolyte disturbance or whatever it might be. The, the uncertainty is so massive. We, I'm, I'm confident MacGyver will never go away in emergency medicine, but I think we can do a better job designing. And I, and you talk about burnout and you talk about, you know, not having enough staff and efficiency and all that. Like we have an opportunity to redesign how we deliver care so that we can use the current resources without even putting a dollar more in more effectively. Absolutely amazing. Sign me up. I'm in. <laughs> yeah. So just and actually like some leadership to. You know, <laughs> well, let's push on that. I mean, what does this look like? So somebody listening to this, that's like, yeah, I want to think about design in my, in my shop. I mean, how much of this is accessible to, you know, a random person working in a random ER or a resident or a trainee listening to this and, and how much of it requires like full vertical buy-in of everybody in the, the team to make changes? I mean, I think if you, you know, like with any large problem, breaking it down into smaller sort of bite-sized tasks is is the way to go, right? Currently, we at our site right now, we've decided to improve, like a, we're not a pediatric center. We don't, we don't see kids, you know, by and large in general, but we do have pediatrics that come in occasionally. And, and as a result, it's highly stressful. Mm-hmm. And so- we're not going to, you know, revamp and and do some massive overhaul of of educating everybody with, you know, months of pals because that return on investment is quite low. You know, it would be better for us to train and do CPR on on adults and and resuscitative care in that space or whatever it might be. But we're redesigning our peds cart differently now mm-hmm. based on feedback from people. And it's a small bite-sized project. It's not, it's not large. We're, we're taking some human factors principles to help sort of build that out. We use simulation to support that design, that usability testing. And, you know, when you, when you start to put in a little bit of effort and you start to have some, you know, we've used it. So to your question about how do you get buy-in, sometimes it requires a little bit of initiative by whoever that might be. But if you can identify a problem and the key thing, not jumping to an immediate solution, but identifying that problem and kind of spelling it out well. And so what we did was we ran simulations with our existing equipment and identified a whole pile of challenges or issues and got feedback. You know, at that point, we hadn't changed anything, but we just presented problems. And, you know, using simulation, you can customize those. You don't have to wait for a pediatric patient to come in, which happens, you know, once every every few weeks for us versus, you know, every day, right? That's not a common event, but the simulation could happen every day. You know, we use simulation to turn a rare event into an anytime event. And so we could, you can use that data now to advocate for, Hey, here's what I would propose. Here's what we've heard from people. The idea of getting end user feedback about what is difficult in their work, I think is not commonly done. We hear about, you know, interpersonal stuff, but we don't often always hear about how people interact with equipment and recognize that, you know, interacting with equipment, spaces, processes is highly linked to how we interact with each other. Because if I can't find something, you know, to do a critical procedure, because it's not in a place that it shouldn't be, you can only imagine how that next interaction is with my colleague, either physician, nurse, you know, clinical assistant, whoever, it's going to be a little dialed up. And I'm the first to admit that I get sometimes a little amped up. So, and that's, you know, I'm working on that part myself, but you know, if you can design that, then you can, you can calm an environment. And so there's a lot of, a lot of value in being able to do that sort of work and and design better. So I think it's, you know, small bite-sized projects, small kind of manageable, you know, don't, don't try and change your whole department, but finding one small thing that bothers people, I can guarantee you can walk around your department and find things that bother mm-hmm. people that whether there's a common theme, whether it be wayfinding, whether, it, but, but you have to spend time 
with the people that are using it, whether it be patients. So, you know, if, if it's crazy that we don't ask patients about their experience very often, and it shouldn't be exclusive patient experience, but that shouldn't help inform in addition to the, you know, the clinician experience. An episode that we've recorded, but hasn't come out yet, but will come out temporarily before this conversation in the future is with Diane Chadwick Jones, who was the former head of safety and human performance at BP. And one of the things that she talked a lot about is about going to these site visits in various places and talking to folks that work in the oil and gas industry and doing a little bit of what you're saying, trying to gather end user feedback for let's say a valve or something. And like, should we redesign this valve to make it safer? What can we do here? How do we figure it out? And one of the things that she described that just was absolute genius that I'm still thinking about just nearly constantly is that how we ask that question makes such a big difference to the answer that we get to it. So what she was describing was starting with, Hey, what's a something innocuous, like, Hey, what's a problem. And a lot of times people would be like, nothing, I'm fine. I find workarounds. This is who I am. I find workarounds. Very similar to what we described, like we're MacGyvers. This is what we do. But her genius comes in when she asks these two really incredible follow-up questions. One is, oh, that's awesome that things are going well. What's been a problem in a similar circumstance to this in the past that's not this time? Oh, okay. So maybe some people open up about that a little bit. Mm. And then the, the even deeper one was, well, it's great that you have so much experience. Somebody else who's brand new starting this task for the first time what problems might they run into that you would want to warn them about? And using that as a back-end wedge to get over some of the identity issues that come up with wanting there to not be problems when we go through hard spaces. Because mm -hmm. I think if you mash those two things up together mm -hmm. that you're saying, like asking for feedback among us who pride ourselves on making it through whatever sometimes has issues, right? People don't necessarily actually give you answers that are, that are real answers for one reason or another. But so using some of her stuff to, to lever our way into this is a great, a great mashup between these episodes. Yeah, no, I, and I like those questions. I think those are super, those are a great way of phrasing and getting at it, mm -hmm. you know, from a different perspective. We actually did some work on this. We asked people about their space, like about how they and, you know, we, and it was specific, we did some simulations and we did some debriefing afterwards. And in the debriefing, the debriefing was not about how did the team perform? It was like, tell us about, you know, how could we could improve the space. And people continue to talk about the interpersonal interactions. It's so difficult mm -hmm. to get people, at least who where the culture of thinking about equipment and processes and systems and, and how it interacts, it's incredibly difficult to get people to get outside of that. In fact, we would ask them, you know, tell me about like equipment you use during intubation. Oh, well, you know, me and the respiratory therapist had this interaction and we're like, no, no, no. I want to talk about the equipment. And so we also overcome that with direct observation. You know, we didn't use those two questions, but I certainly will start to use them when we start to ask these, but we do ask very structured questions. Like we sort of signpost at the beginning, we're going to ask you about you know, the overall design of a space, we're going to ask you about, you know, X, Y, and Z, like the specific elements of this to get them into that mindset before they go through that, um, whether that be at the, in the pre-briefing or the debriefing after running a simulation or in a clinical event. But we really hone in on like giving them specific questions because the, the broad questions don't it's very difficult for people to just kind of come up with stuff. So we'll have specific themes or elements like overall design, looking at the, the font or the, the, the signage. We'll look at, you know, is the, all the equipment there? Tell me about the usability of that particular equipment. So we're very detailed when we're starting to refine, you know, for instance, if, if we're using equipment examples. So it's a bit of a different process for sure. And you have to acknowledge that people will want to talk about either. They won't want to talk at all uh -huh. because there's a hierarchy that exists or some weird, you know, cultural dynamic that won't allow for speaking up. And that, that's mm -hmm. like a whole other piece. And then also we just aren't very good at thinking about this. And this would dovetail into like why we don't video record everything that happens in resuscitations. You know, that's a, if we want to go down a path, but to be able to reflect and, and look at that and, you know, you look at any sports team that's a high achieving sports team, they're looking at video every week or every after every game and, and reflecting on that. Because then you can be like, oh, I can't believe I did that mm -hmm. in that moment. And that spawns a whole 
amazing conversation. So can we zoom out and look at sort of what this whole arc might look like a little bit? So I'm not sure how you would start this arc, but maybe it's, you know, Dan has a challenging case where he opens a crike kit and the crike kit didn't have what I expected in it, which is a real life example for me from a smaller hospital I worked in. I opened the crike kit and there was actually nothing of the things that you would need to do a crike in it, um, which is not when you want to find that out. Okay. So there's a problem with a piece of gear. There's a design problem essentially. So then what are the things that, that would arc into that? Cause you said basically one of the key pillars of this is you identify the problem and then you, you anchor yourself or you stay in the problem space. You don't jump into the solution space yet, but you stay in that problem space. What would you do next in that problem space to better define it? Right. So I would want to, I mean, ideally we would have, you know, if, if we had a video recording of that, that would be amazing. But we won't. So we would ask you video to- recording of me flailing, which would be really useful right. to see. Yes, <laughs> right, exactly. It wouldn't. It's uh, to, that's not ideal. That's not what you're looking for in the middle of a, a crike to to not have you know the scalpel or something like that. Not um, not my. Uh, it was suboptimal. Yes, <laughs> suboptimal would be a fair statement. I mean, I would ask you to just describe to me what happened. Tell me about what you did. You know, just walk me through it and and get a narrative. You can you can put in any feelings you want, any anything that's going through your mind? What were you thinking? Where did you look? Did you notice anybody else around you? Did anybody else help you? Just talk to you. You know, then I would also ask anybody else in the room, what happened there? Not what went well or what didn't. No, just tell me what, and this is some of the stuff that from Shannon McNamara that you had on, it was wonderful, wonderful perspective on just understanding what's happening, not assigning any, any, um, you know, something's right or wrong. Just mm -hmm. tell me what happened. And then we would say, okay, well, as a group, perhaps, you know, if we're doing, if we're running a debriefing or if we're, you know, doing this later on, we would then start to kind of look and say, okay, what is actually the problem here? What did you need? What piece of equipment was missing? And then rather than just say, okay, let's stock that again. Well, like, why did that happen? You know, what element was, was it a stocking problem that will be reproducible every time so that, yeah, we can go restock it, but the second order thinking would be, and then what? Like, I can fix that now. I can, we can just go walk into the Craig kit and put whatever it was that was missing, but is that durable? Mm -hmm. And so then we start to brainstorm ideas because it might be more complex. It often is more complex than what we think. Instead, the usual approach would be that was missing. Let's add it in right now. I'm going to go down there and add it in, which is a good idea because there's going to be the next patient that rolls in. Sure. We should have that, but we need to then zoom out a bit and understand who else might be involved so that we can make a change that is durable, is sustainable. And then whatever change we make, we, we would probably want to test it. Like, okay, let's go do that crike again. Make sure that, you know, one, the equipment fits because like They'll probably give you a piece of equipment that actually doesn't fit into the package or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's predictable. And it won't fit then into the drawer or something. And then somebody will tape it on to the back of the cart, you know? So like, let's actually go through that and, and make sure. And then, you know, I don't know, get a mannequin head out, go through the crack, make sure that like, you know, you, you have all the equipment and what, maybe it, maybe it fell out. Maybe it was never put there. You know, like we need to be better and more deliberate at understanding why before we jump to an immediate solution, right? If it just fell out, well, then then maybe the problem is fixing the bag or the box that it was in. If it was never there, and we need to understand that, then we need, you know, whoever's stocking it needs to, to fix it. So that's where you obviously can't get bogged down forever, but you can prioritize high risk elements. Like you can't do this for everything, but this strikes me as something that is important. An airway tends to be important. <laughs> you know, a lack of an airway is also a problem. So <laughs> this would rank on, yeah, low, you know, a, a halo event, you know, right. a high right. acuity, low, low occurrence event, but all of us would agree that it's a sort of an, a, a never event, right. Or close yeah. to, right. That should never happen. So we need a, we need a strategy to fix that. So we need a process that is reproducible that we can do over and over and we'll get better at it. Like maybe the first time we try this, that's the other thing is the process we practice. Like we should not expect that the first time we try and fix this problem, that maybe we may not get it right. And mm -hmm. maybe our process is a little bit flawed. So we should also think about like, Oh, well maybe, 
maybe we didn't, you know, involve the right people. Maybe we didn't, maybe we jumped too quickly to the solution. Okay. Well, so when it happens again, which, you know, is not ideal, mm-hmm. fine, deal with that, be emotional about that. We can get upset. We can deal with that. But then the mistake then needs to be reflected on and say, okay, well, there's a problem with how we're dealing with this missing equipment. Like, what is the problem here? And get better at it. Like everything, you know, you can, pra- you can apply practice to almost all skills. And this would, I would say, would fall under a skill. And so we're also really talking though about building a culture that values these types of questions that is comfortable interacting with each other around these types of questions and that, and that cares about them, right. Which is not necessarily the culture that we have in a lot of places. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, it does, it's incredibly important to be able to create an environment where we move quickly to implement and I'm okay with the word implement, but I find it, it denotes a sort of permanence. So I try, I like to use the word pilot or trial when we're doing new things so that people are not, you know, we've done a lot of new equipment introductions through the work that I've done and you can use implementation, I guess, and implementation science has a whole sort of, you know, there's a lot of work there, but what is imprinted in most healthcare clinicians' minds is permanent so that when equipment A rolls out, it's permanent. In fact, what we should be saying is that we're prototyping this, we're trialing it, we're piloting it, whatever it might be, so that people know that they have permission to give feedback on that. That then, yes, like obviously we need to be able to put out some equipment that's going to save somebody's life when we need to. But we also need to have a process that allows for people to look back at that and be like, hmm, actually that didn't work as well as it should. Like we we should fix this. And we were talking about this earlier, that gets to the, process over outcome piece and, and, or at least process equals is equal to outcome, you know, like, yeah, we got to be able to intubate patients, but you have to have a process to be able to one, get the equipment there properly two to be able to do the skill properly. And if you're going to ever get better, you want to be able to learn in a, in a way that, that makes sense. You know, one of the things that comes up for me when, when I'm hearing this, other than looking backward at things I've done in the past that aren't this, right? Like my own handling of this case, which happened many years ago, we're opening up the cry kit and it was nothing there. I solved it in large quotes in the way that you sort of described, which is that I was like, all right, well, get me a cry kit for next time, you know, and great. Now there's a cry kit in the drawer. Whew, problem solved. Everything is, everything is great. But obviously that's not the case because there, you know, there were so many questions that were left about like, well, how do we handle halo events in general? And how do we communicate with different parts of the hospital? And what is our protocol for this? And who is the champion of learning and teaching these kind of events? And how do we do that? That just never got answered. And, and, you know, personally, I'll never forget. I'll never forget that case, which we, which we won't go too much into here, except that the very next person that came in also had like nearly identical symptoms. And I was like, oh my God, here we go again. Thankfully it was not the same. We only cracked one of them and both of them lived, which is wonderful. But, but we really weren't designing a solid process in that place. And I was, I was pretty junior when that happened. And I'd like to think I'd handle it differently now, but it brings up a really important question for me, which is how do we teach this style of thinking to the people that are coming up now? Right. So you and I will think about building better systems and building better teams. And then eventually, you know, we will both blink out of existence and then there'll have to be somebody else. Who... Hopefully not too soon. <laughs> Hopefully not too soon. Right. But, Hopefully not too yeah. soon. Yeah. That's for real. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, eventually on a long enough time. Frame. Yes. So there, it has to be durable, not only to the particular problem that caused this thing to happen, but also to the particular people who cared about this particular problem. And, and it really requires teaching. You know, we, we were sort of riffing on this before we started about like, how do you teach things like making decisions, right? How do you teach things like caring about design into, into the way that, that systems are built and that cultures are built? And there's so many different ways to take that. But I guess I'd ask in your teams right now, how are you not only doing this work, but teaching this work? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, you know, we were talking about this at the beginning. I think it's it's rare in medicine, as much as we make decisions, and particularly in emergency medicine, 
the decision density that occurs on a regular basis is, you know, all, maybe almost unmatched. I don't know. There's probably some other domains out there. You know, if, if you're, you know, I'm sure if I was on my way to the moon, I'm sure the decision density there would be heavy. I going to say my folks that I have, uh, had the privilege of working with who are in NASA mission control and one way or the other have a very similar thought process, although I, in many ways more evolved than what we use in emergency medicine to, to both design, simulate, and then back check their decisions. But it's a similar density and surface area for sure. Right. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I don't want to say we're exclusive in this, but, but in healthcare, we like, we don't spend a lot of time teaching at a sort of a higher level view of about how we can make decisions. And so I think that is a lost opportunity given the importance of the decisions that we make, um, whether it's, you know, either the patient is, can't be involved because they're, you know, undergoing resuscitation or they are involved in the decision. And, and it's about articulating that to them. And, and, you know, you're, you're making a decision, a joint decision with them. Uh, so I think, you know, we, we, we do it, I guess, sort of sidestep the process a little bit where we would teach people how to build a differential diagnosis. We teach people how to make dis- particular clinical decisions under certain circumstances. And then we hope that they extrapolate from that process. For instance, I think we were, when we were talking about this a little bit earlier, the idea that, okay, once the SATs of the oxygen saturations, you know, in it during an intubation hit, whatever the pre-specified cut point is, you've decided 80% or 60% or something, and you're going to proceed to a crike. What you're doing there, and, and you haven't successfully intubated and you have no other options to, to secure the airway, what you're doing there is, is providing a, some type of benchmark or off-ramp or set point to then you know, pivot on whatever it is that you're doing. But that's not, never been explicitly described to me. And so I think the idea of how we make decisions really could be better described and, and then we anchor in medicine on, you know, we give particular examples. Like I work in academic center, just like you do. So I'm working with residents all the time. And, you know, we'll, we'll have patients that present with abdominal pain and they'll, I'll say, okay, you know, and I'm, I'm, I do this. So it's not like I'm any different than any, anybody else, but I'll say, what's your differential. But then I've now recently, you know, they list out four or five things and, and I say, okay, so what are we going to do? And, you know, it's usually a CT, right? You know, CT of the abdomen, fine. Uh, but what we haven't explored is what's the likelihood of each of those differentials. And so I'll ask them, I'll say, you know, they'll come to me and say, I think it's likely appendicitis. I say, okay, fine, no problems. Great. You know, what, what do you want to do? An ultrasound or a CT to further the, you know, to, to clarify the diagnosis. And but I'll ask them, I'll say, what's the probability of that? What do you think the likelihood is based on what do they know? There's no right answer. I tell them, but then we can get, and I say, you know, let's say 80%. I say, okay, fine. What are the factors that lead you to 80%? Why do you think that? Okay. And built into that implicit is 20%, you know, rightly or wrongly, there's something else happening because they told me 80%. And so then I say to them, well, what's that other 20%? And why should we worry about those other 20%? You know, so I love the idea of using probabilities to, to sort of as a starting point for teaching decisions, because it forces us to think about the vast array of possibilities. And then we can also, we can calibrate that for future decisions. So that if every time I say, it's 80% appendicitis. And I've literally never seen a patient with appendicitis <laughs> or, or like the scans are always negative. Then I have to go back to this and, and, and say, well, maybe it's not 80%. Maybe it's actually about 30%. And I'm missing like, you know, if every time it ends up being renal colic or diverticulitis or something else, then I need to recalibrate that. And what, what you get with percentages and probabilities is you can also write that stuff down, you know, you can, and and you can create a decision journal so that you can reflect on that and hopefully get better again. Like this speaks to, this isn't just about, am I getting better at diagnosing appendicitis? This is me getting better at making decisions. I've never been fortunate enough to be taught explicitly, at least that I can remember maybe, maybe along the way somebody has, but it hasn't been something that I've you know, spend a lot of time until recently thinking about. And so, you know, that's a starting point for how I've 
started to talk to, you know, some of our trainees, some colleagues about, about um, decision-making. And in fact, I can recall recently, I was having a conversation with a consultant and we were debating whether a patient had an infected kidney stone. And I said, you know, honestly, I like, I think it's probably like 80, this was just on the phone and, and I didn't mm-hmm. know the, the, the consultant uh, very well or anything. So, and I just said, I think it's like, it's probably like 80 or 90% chance that that's what it is. And then what he then said, that opened up a conversation where he's like, no, nah, I think it's like 50 because hmm. here's why. And we didn't get into, we actually had a very good conversation because then I could understand why he did not believe that. And there was some missing information I was able to provide him. And then I said, oh, you know, there were some factors that I hadn't, I guess I hadn't told him. And I said, oh no, actually here's, you know, those are met. Does that change the likelihood to you? And he's like, oh yeah, actually it does. And okay, here's what. So we had a very, two people who were far apart in terms of where we thought the problem this patient had, this was prior to, you know, getting all of the information done, we actually were then able to kind of come together and bridge that gap. And we were able to have a more meaningful conversation because we were able to use that. Yeah. I love that. One of the things that I learned from, from Annie Duke, when she was on the podcast was talking about this idea of, of looking at dispersal of ideas, right. And essentially asking when you have a team and you're looking at this kind of thing, asking folks, well, what do we think the probability of this is? making the juniors say something first, so they're not heavily influenced by the seniors, but then not only looking at what the dominant model of the group is, but also looking at where there's dispersal, right? Mm -hmm. Like, is there a group that clusters around 20% and a group that clusters around 60%? And then being like, well, what are your understandings of the universe that are different from each other? Right? Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely key to know that. And and then that was exactly what we experienced. mm -hmm. You know, he had a mental model of this particular syndrome. I had a different one, or maybe and, and then we were able to come together. Yeah. There's a great computer science technique. There's a bunch of them in the classification and regression sort of universe that talks about this a lot, but there's one in particular that, that I've used in the past called random forest analysis, where essentially you, you have a bunch of variables and then you build a bunch of different tiny little people, so to speak, so I'm playing very fast and loose with how this works. So if you're in a computer science, just bear with me here, but you okay. build all these little people and each person has a different set of beliefs about what matters and they all vote on what they think the thing is. So imagine if you had a hundred residents and they were all sort of randomly trained in random medicine, you gave them yeah. all the lab values in the patient and you made each one vote, whether or not it was a kidney stone, then you'd get a, a an ensemble answer. Mm. Well, you know, 80% of the people or trees or forest or whatever, 80% of the forest thinks it's a kidney stone and 20% does it. And here's the thing that each of those groups thinks is the most important factor in predicting this based on all this data that we look back at. I think that it's a really useful technique to study a little bit because it gives you some intuition in this kind of conversation that we're having, right? Which is how do different systems of beliefs influence what you think a thing is and what happens when you have an ensemble of those beliefs that you then try to make decisions off of, which is very similar from what happens in a resuscitation room because every person has a different vantage point on what's happening, right? They all have their own belief structures about what's happening, even if they're relatively or less relatively aligned. And one of your jobs as the leader of this resuscitation team is to is to synthesize these multiple different viewpoints, these multiple different votes about what's happening and take from them an ensemble picture of what's going on. So I would totally recommend just as a complete sidebar that you look into this like random forest modeling. It's really fun to play with. <laughs> I will. I will. I'm not much yeah. of a computer scientist, but I, I'm sure That's- I can Easy to, easy to get into without, without too much of a lift for sure. Andrew, I want to be mindful of our time, man. This is awesome. I think there's just like so many other directions to take this, but as we get towards closing this out, I want to give you the chance to offer a challenge to people listening to this, right? I guess mine was unintentionally go learn random forest modeling, but, but what do you want people to walk away from this with? What do you want them to do differently on Monday? Or what do you want them to to go back and think about? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the probably areas that I, that we could do is, is, you know, start journaling our decisions or writing them down, you know, key ones, you know, high stakes ones. So write them down, reflect on them, and then think about, you know, what can I do better the next time? Or how can I do better the next time? There's always opportunity for improvement. And this idea that, you know, you, you write down sort of what that decision was, or, you know, you write a narrative about like what happened and how you're feeling kind of in that moment, you know, were you stressed? Uh, did you feel confident in the decision, whatever it might be? And then eventually you can, you know, you look at the outcome of the patient or you look at the outcome of the event. And then, you know, you use that over time to get better, I think is, is something that 
I've started to do and think more about and, and reflect. And then I also think about in that, when I start to, when, you know, I had a, a case with a, a penetrating neck injury where I ended up having a tracheal injury. It was not entirely known at the time that was suspected prior to us securing the airway. And I think back of, on that, and we, we were able to do so without front of neck access. We were able to do so, you know, in, in, intubating from above. But I do think there was like an element of, you know, luck in what happened. And so I thought, you know, how certain was I when, you know, I've, I've kind of thought about this, I haven't specifically written it down, but I've spent some time thinking about it and writing kind of a few elements down, but how likely, you know, okay, what did we do? What did we decide on? Like, you know, were those good decisions? Okay. How do I measure that? Ultimately the outcome was good. The patient had a good outcome, but what part of that, you know, did I get lucky? Like what, what was the likelihood that that was just luck? What elements of that would have changed my decision? You know, so if the patient, you know, had a visible tracheal injury where I could be certain that it was injured, would I have done something different? So walking through a few different alternatives so that the next time I'm faced with that, I've kind of preemptively done that. And I have a, a, a better understanding versus me just saying, yeah, you know, great work by, you know, the team and, and, you know, we were, we were excellent and it all worked out great move on. And then I go back and I do the same thing the next time. But if that whole situation isn't identical, then I've lost an opportunity to learn. And I, you know, there's potential harm that comes to a, a patient because I didn't actually reflect not whether I was good or bad, but just on actually what happened and what were the the elements that led that to me? So this has been something I've kind of started been toying with. And it's, you know, it's it's work that Kahneman has kind of described and Annie Duke has described. And, you know, key just people that that really spend time thinking about decisions is is actually reflecting on them with you and your team. So like an immediate debrief and and not just like a, you know, the usual plus delta that we do, like what went well, what didn't, just talking people through your decisions and getting other people because they may have seen different things. And, and so, you know, that immediate debriefing piece and then reflecting on it yourself and, and, you know, what was the likelihood and, you know, writing down that probability and thinking about what was the likelihood that outcome would happen again under those exact same circumstances, or should I have done something different? Like had I fallen that 20% of that outcome was going to be good and 80%. And I really just sidestepped a massive catastrophe because if we don't think about that, then, and we don't try and get better at a, at a sort of a, a higher level of decisions in practice and all of that, then, then we're going to, then we don't have an opportunity to improve and we'll, we'll be stuck in our ways forever. <laughs> Amazing. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Totally a pleasure to talk to you. And we definitely have to do a round two very quickly. Oh, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure and a great conversation. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com book. All right, good luck out there.